the Midwestern University, 
From the same university, we have received a list of 186 books, including these 37. How they chose these, I don't know. The FBI wondered if there might be a pattern at auction sale. Not only was there not a pattern, but because the books were unmarked in any way, there was no possibility of legal identification. The Edna Insurance Company called to find out how to modify a Bam Bam record after paying a claim. So if the book is recovered, they'll get it rather than destroy it. <laughs> into what we call the OCLC church choir bind. Now the OCLC church choir bind has to do with many, many people inputting records, which is like democracy in a church choir. It's a wonderful idea and the resulting sound can be kind of grim. So we wanted to avoid that and for other obvious reasons, we did not want outsiders messing with the records. Uh, one time we had a call from someone who asked where the subscriber delete key was in this database. And uh, 
although it would have been useful for thieves, we have never had a subscriber delete key. Accordingly, we combined a version of our database structure with an electronic bulletin board so that people could report directly the minute they discovered something missing, and others could read those reports before searching the database and certainly before buying anything suspect. Thanks to Terry, we received RBMS support. Thanks to Ann Campbell and Phil Mason, we received SAA support. Uh, with incredible alacrity, they issued press releases saying, we have finished, they are doing it, and placed all our stuff, their stuff in our laps. I should have known then, but it didn't occur to me. And thanks to Johnny Jenkins, we received ABAA support, which is uh, the antiquarian booksellers, and a partial defraying of the original costs as the ABAA bought a copy of the hard copy version of the original file for each of its members. Now, the basic form of BAM BAM is an online database consisting of books, manuscripts, autographs, documents, signed photographs, plates from books, and similar materials which are not to be found in their proper resting places. You don't have to attest that they're stolen, they just aren't where they ought to be. To be included in the BAM BAM database, whatever is missing must be worth $50 or its equivalent in another currency. At the moment, the database, which changes all the time as things are found and more things are stolen, contains about 8,000 records submitted by institutions, dealers, and collectors. Both libraries and individuals submitting new entries have the option of deciding whether or not they want their names to appear or whether they want to have a code word which protects them from public something or other, but they can do that. Anyone who has access to a computer terminal that can be hooked up to a telephone line can reach Bam Bam directly in North America or through Telenet throughout the world, except during the hunting season. Uh, one can report to the bulletin board or look at the bulletin board and then go on to search the database by author, title, date, type of document, or combination of these. Should a proffered item turn out to be listed, then the record itself will indicate where one reports such a recovery or a sighting. Because not everyone has a computer terminal available for use, arrangements are very often made for people to write or telephone, and then we enter the item or make the search for people. Now, Bam Bam has shown to be threefold in its usefulness. It provides a single central location for records of missing books and manuscripts. There's only one place to look. It provides ways to report losses instantly before the lost materials can change hands again. And its very existence has served as some deterrent to thieves because they have a more difficult time in disposing of stolen goods. Now, in the best of all possible worlds, the story could end right here with Bam Bam functioning away until library theft lessened dramatically and the tearful would-be book thieves abandon their vocations for such exotic alternatives as good, honest work. But in our real world, it isn't that simple. To begin with, the effectiveness of any reporting system depends on a willingness to report. A recent letter from an American rare book librarian illustrates this problem. Attached is the documentation for five rare books stolen last year from our library during the move to new quarters. Our dean of libraries did not wish the theft reported because of the unfavorable publicity, but he is retired, and I hasten to send you the particulars now before the new dean takes office. <laughs> 
The reporting of stolen items and the vigorous prosecution of wrongdoers are essential deterrents to crime. But all too many academic administrators and librarians operate under two common misapprehensions. If anybody finds out that books or manuscripts have been stolen, one, other thieves will come to our library and steal other books, and two, we will receive no further gifts from donors or grants from government agencies, for they will cease to trust us. In fact, where library security ends at the front door, thieves will return again and again to steal because they know no one will do anything about it. They know which institutions are safe to steal from because they make no reports to law enforcement officers or the press or Bam Bam or anyone. It is also unfair to the book trade to fail to make a theft public and then reclaim the book. If the book or manuscript has changed hands more than once, then somebody in the trade will lose the money he or she paid for the item. Some dealers in America now are maintaining that unreported stolen property is abandoned property, and there may well be some basis for this sort of contention in the law of other countries as well. The fear of donors almost always is groundless. Far worse is the situation in which the donor asks to see the book that he or she has given to an institution only to discover then that it is missing and no one has told him. Responsible administrators must report thefts and cooperate in the prosecution of thieves. Through the efforts of such responsible librarians as Patricia Sachs at Muhlenberg and Cedarcrest in Pennsylvania and William Moffat, the librarian of Oberlin College, the master book thief James Shin was sentenced to 20 years in prison, surely a daunting example to other would-be thieves. The Shin case, with which I'm more familiar than some because I appraised those wonderful 16 trunk loads of books recovered for the FBI, highlighted a number of other problems concerning libraries and book thefts. One, budget problems have made it impossible for many libraries to take inventory of their holdings. There may be no way to know books are missing. At this moment, I know of more than 1,500 unclaimed books and maps in the hands of the FBI alone. These may have to be listed as additional locations before long if this <laughs> continues. <clears throat> Many librarians have no idea of the market value of their holdings. Old travel books, old botanical books, and old scientific periodicals often are tucked away in obscure stacks because they are not considered to have much academic value, even though many works in these categories have come to have considerable market value. Many library structures have no provision for the protection of stealable books, which are not in special collections. Thieves tend to be the only people who remember that Freud and Jung first editions are tucked in among lesser contributions to old scientific periodicals, or that the boom in photographica means that many late 19th and early 20th century books contain now valuable photographs which can be razored out easily. Three, most American libraries, and I imagine this to be true in many other countries as well, have no designated security officer and no established procedures concerning inquiries about stolen books. Terry at one point conducted an experiment when he was serving as chairman of the security committee of RBMS. He telephoned libraries pretending to find, have found a book that might belong to them. In many cases he encountered total confusion and was unable even to make a report. In a few cases the response amounted to, if it's valuable it's ours. 
but almost never was he immediately referred to a knowledgeable person who could answer his questions. Many libraries, and this is more true in America than anywhere else, have no historical record of how they marked books at various times throughout the years. Some of the Shin books could have been returned had we but known, say, what libraries in America marked page 23 and placed a lozenge-shaped stamp at the lower right of the title page. When such stamps are defaced or even obliterated, a library might not be able to identify its own holdings should the stamping policy differ from present practice. Here, libraries should follow the example of the Bibliothèque Nationale, which has a wonderful complete file of all different markings, which are fascinating in themselves. The whole matter of the marking of rare books and manuscripts is a thorny one. Just how thorny, I did not realize until June 82, when, along with Ellen Dunlap of the Humanities Research Center of the University of Texas at Austin, and guess who, I participated in a seminar <coughs> um, marking special collections material for security at the Rare Books and Manuscripts pre-conference at the ALA's meeting in Philadelphia. Guess who being Terry again. This seminar was held twice, in the course of which we discovered that 19th century marking practices in American libraries were probably more sensible than those of the present day. Of some 300 rare books librarians attending the two sessions, only four represented institutions which have a thoroughgoing marking policy. A number of institutions use book plates, but very often in the case of theft, the binding is removed and replaced. Plating alone, or indeed any sort of marking which is confined to binding and end papers, has almost no security function at all. A number of rare books librarians have simply abdicated as concerns marking, it's not our job, that's technical services, was a comment made with minor variations again and again. Another commonly made comment was, no, we don't mark, it would diminish the value of our holdings. Diminish the value to whom? And in terms of what? Certainly, if libraries intend to sell their books in the near future, the presence of markings do, does make books worth less to the antiquarian book trade than their unmarked equivalents. And certainly, in some cases, there are books where how you mark it is, is a, a very tricky and severe question. But should the preservation of pristine condition for the benefit of the trade be a priority in libraries? If we follow this line of thinking far enough, before long we will be sequestering everything of possible monetary value and refusing to allow bibliographers to include locational notes in their work. The whole business of marking has gone too far in one direction. Material, which has come into Bam Bam in the past couple of years, has revealed that again and again what happens is we get stacks of LC cards, unmodified in any way. Well, I mean, there's no point in anybody sending those at all. There's no way to, there's no way to tell what a copy is. And also we've seen... Um, that because of the inexorable march towards standardization and computerization, we get a lot of records which are well made with respect to current cataloging standards, but which had a very serious flaw in common. The copy had been lost in the cataloging. Physical defects, annotations, the position of watermarks with reference to plate marks, 
In short, the unique characteristics of a copy which could result in its return even if the binding had been removed, rarely were these noted or even known. While debates rage on in various countries about whether bibliographical description and cataloging should converge or diverge, few librarians seem to have given very much thought to this important question. If a valuable book were stolen, and if the binding were removed and the stamps obliterated, could you identify it as your copy to the satisfaction of a law enforcement officer? When it comes to the whole matter of copies and machine-readable cataloging, there are moments when the rabbit hole and the memory hole look dismayingly alike. Somewhere in all this, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson crosses paths with Eric Arthur Blair, and at the point of intersection, we find that awful hybrid, Orwellian nonsense. The actual copies of books seem to be sinking from sight as the mark structure grows and grows, sprouting lists of related terms, genre thesauruses, standardized citation forms for bibliographical references to be used as access points in the 510 field. The good guys from the RBMS Standards Committee push at the mark structure to make it a better box to put rare book records in. But look what happens. On the matter of copies, LC and Marby, a joint committee advising LC on mark maintenance, adopted a proposal defining subfield 5 and the 700 through 740 fields for the location of an entry as copy specific. But Marby did not allow the indication of the actual copy within the institution, relegating that to a note. This means that you can indicate that a copy belonged to Thomas Jefferson and that you're allowed to say that it's at Yale, but not that it's Yale's copy 3. In Mark Newspeak, copy has become copy specific. And as that term takes hold, people tend to go for notes on location and forget the physical characteristics of copy. Moreover, much of the information that is on, uh, in notes does not display anywhere, and it is hard to get to this information. Should this sort of thing continue to its illogical conclusion, then there are real dangers that libraries in time will become horrible places where people can go to access information abstracted by people of unknown confidence, competence, and available through searching structures of an imperfect or even deliberately obfuscating nature. It is infinitely harder to detect removals or revisions in a video disk than it is in a book. Librarians would then become guardians of terminals. The final vision at the bottom of the rabbit hole is one in which real people are condemned to oblivion by a pack of cards. <laughs> Similarly, there is a wonderful scene in the film Rollerball in which the protagonist goes to the world's central computer installation where he encounters Ralph Richardson as the system's chief, dithering and muttering, oh dear, oh dear, we've lost the 13th century. <laughs> Even now, what happens in computer land if there are too many brownouts or dimouts, let alone a critical energy shortage? Only if the humanists hang in there will Alice be able to wake up from the bad part of the dream. Otherwise, we'll have all structure and no content, which is a fair definition of cultural extinction. We need to be like Lewis Carroll, both dodging the number cruncher and Carroll the dreamer with some sense of nonsense, which concludes the sermon. Now back to theft. In July 1982, fully 70% of the books stolen by James Shin sat forlornly in Allentown, Pennsylvania, unclaimed by anybody at all. 
and despite the publication of an inventory of the books by William Moffat of Oberlin. All of the reasons I have mentioned are partially responsible for the orphaning of these books. Budget and inventory, fear of publicity, lack of knowledge of market value, lack of a person responsible for security matters, failure to mark material, and lack of a record of earlier forms of marking. Many of the Shin books bore markings of one sort or another, and even when these had been obliterated, you could tell where they had been. At this point, I began to think about what I eventually called passive cataloging for theft. Although Bam Bam works well, it needs to become part of a larger structure under an institutional aegis. Bam Bam should be taken over by something like the Center for the Book or the Library of Congress or by an international body, and then combined with another sort of database altogether. What is needed, I think, is a register of library markings. Each library would provide, or probably more often do the research and then provide, a historical record of its marking policies, including examples of the stamps it had used in various periods, listing the page or leaf number stamped or otherwise marked. Then the collected information would be mounted on video disk, thereby enabling law enforcement officers and other qualified experts to say, obtain a list of the libraries which stamped in the lower margin of page 23 and placed a circular stamp on the top of the title page. With such information, the officers or experts would be able to identify and send orphan books home, and libraries would have better tools to use in reclaiming copies. As I was thinking these thoughts, along came the Committee for the Oberlin Conference on Theft, of which I became a part. This invitational conference on theft will be held in September at Oberlin, with the funding furnished by the H.W. Wilson Foundation. It is being sponsored by an ad hoc committee of members of the Rare Books and Manuscripts section of the Association of College and Research Libraries, of the Society of American Archivists, of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America, and of the Society of American Archivists American Library Association Joint Committee. That's everybody, isn't it? The purpose of the conference is to strengthen and coordinate the efforts of the American Library Association, the, that's all those people, by bringing together representatives of the three associations with law enforcement officers, insurance industry representatives, librarians, museum administrators, dealers, and others with expertise in this area to survey current practice and to make recommendations for further action. The conference proceedings will be taped and edited for widespread distribution. Now, one of the most interesting ideas to emerge from the planning of that conference is the concept of a national security office to act as a nerve center for matters having to do with theft and with all forms of security. The NSO, or, well, got it, right? Then it's there if it has initials. The NSO would serve as the central liaison with all law enforcement agencies maintain the register of library markings, bam, bam, and a database of archival and manuscript collections. For instance, um, Colby College has a wonderful abolitionist collection, which is not what everybody immediately thinks of when uh, abolitionist material that no one knows where it comes from turns up. So you need to know on, on a better basis where small collections are. NSO would also maintain an up-to-date information on state and federal legislation, which would help people know what rights they have in detaining people, how they proceed, and so on, and would advise institutions on procedures and laws. 
It would set up a security reference service and keep up with changes in standards for all aspects of the subject, from fire to bomb to theft. There's more to security than just theft. If it could uh, achieve legal status, it could maintain a rogues gallery of known malefactors and modes of operations, which can be useful because people tend to steal in patterns. It would maintain a file of case histories on successful and failed prosecutions and their costs, which can be very important in deciding what to do in a given case. And they would set up a committee to advise both insurance companies and institutions dealing with insurance companies in the area of theft and valuation. And finally, and most trickily, they would set up an impartial panel to arbitrate disagreements over the ownership of materials. And Lord knows at this point, somebody's got to do that. Interestingly enough, here comes Zan Lee. Uh, the NSO would not be costly to establish especially if the Library of Congress's arm could be twisted to change its mind about housing it. But to be effective, this office must be a national institution and must have at least a quasi-official status in law enforcement terms. This may sound a little bit strange and far out, but do remember that in France right now, there are 36 people in the area of art and libraries and similar materials who do nothing but this all the time. Now, perhaps this attempt is Carol's dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. But then, once you've gone down the rabbit hole, what can you do but dream your way out? Uh, no, we drink. It is the custom of the House for us to adjourn immediately uh, to a reception at which we hope you will all present yourselves and ask our speaker any questions you have then informally. The reception starts as soon as I get there, uh, and I walk fast, in room 523. And thank you for coming.